Good morning, church. Will you please open scripture with me to Matthew chapter 5? Our text today is going to be from verses 33 through 37. Uh, Allow me to read this for you as you read along. And these are the words of Christ. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. When you listen to the news, do you assume that what you're being told is the truth? Much of the time, I can tell by your chuckles that you don't. (laughs) Or when you hear political candidates make promises and they get into office, um, do you assume that they're going to keep those promises? Well, you know the old saying, talk is cheap. And when I look around, I think it's probably never been cheaper. Words have never meant less, and it's surprising to us when leaders do what they'll say. I'll take, for example, a courtroom, uh, this famous oath that we all know by heart. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Well, whether you're watching Law and Order or you're actually in a real courtroom and someone takes that oath, are you surprised to learn later that they've lied under oath? I don't think so. It's all too common. Or what about independent fact checkers? who censor what oftentimes is obviously the truth, and then they dub it a lie, and then nobody has access to it. And this happens every day, and it's happening at such breakneck speed that we can barely keep up, much less be alarmed at how endangered the truth has become. Rod Dreher published a book last year with the title, Live Not By Lies. And that title was taken from an address that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Christian dissident in Soviet Russia, Um, gave to the Soviet people, or the Russian people, before he was exiled for publishing the truth about what he and others were experiencing in the gulags. And Dreyer recounts how in that address, Solzhenitsyn looks totalitarianism in the face and declares that it's built on a mountain of lies. And he says to an oppressed people who were suffering under those lies, he says this, Our way must be never knowingly support lies. Our way must be never knowingly support lies. In other words, be people of the truth and refuse to be party to deceit. Solzhenitsyn was a Russian Orthodox Christian. He knew that truth isn't just what people decide for themselves it's going to be the way that we're told truth works today. No, he knew that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, if it weren't for the triune God, we would have no hope of knowing anything that's true because there would be no such thing as objective truth apart from who he is. And as Christians, we're in good standing in our pursuit of truth because we're saved through the one who is the truth. And so it makes sense to us here that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would make it clear that his people are not people of deceit, they're people of truth. That's basic to who they are as Christians. If the Sermon on the Mount is being preached to those who have come to Christ by faith, and then he's laying out what growth in grace looks like, then the truth is at the center of that. 
So not only must Christians never knowingly support lies, but they must themselves never lie. Instead, we must tell the truth. And as we do, we find that, as Jesus said, we're salt, preserving a world that is decaying from the corrosive effects of deceit. We speak the truth, especially the truth of the gospel, and we find that in a society that is filled with the darkness of deception, the truth of the gospel goes forward and brings an illuminating influence to people who are under the influence of Satan, whom Jesus calls the father of lies. Jesus says in John 8:44, Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. In fact, Satan deceived Eve in the beginning. The whole thing got kicked off with deceit. And ever since Eden, sinful human beings have been corrupting the truth with lies. And in our text today, Jesus confronts the lies that the scribes and the Pharisees were empowering people to make through their wrong handling of the word of God. So they started with God's word, but they quickly perverted what he said about the promises that his people make. And in the process, what they were doing was they were, they were helping other people to pervert their own promises and to lie regularly. And what's even worse, it's hard to believe, but, but they were actually saying that as people did what they were teaching, uh, that that was in, in itself a righteous thing. They weren't actually violating God's word at all. I'll show you how. But before we look at how the Pharisees were perverting the promises of God, um, were perverting what God says about people's promises, we're going to look first at what God actually said about the promises his people make. Then we'll look at how the scribes and the Pharisees were twisting that. And then we'll consider ourselves um, in, the, in the light of God's word, how Jesus would have us live as people of the truth. Well, from the beginning of the Bible, we see that God cares about his people's promises. God cares about his people's promises. Now, this wasn't really disputed by the Jews of Jesus' day. Everybody knew that God actually cared that people kept their promises. And so Jesus quotes the popular teaching of the day, um, which, he, which we see in verse 33. He says again, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And the thing is, that's true. That's true. God's people shouldn't swear falsely. They should do the things that they swear to the Lord that they will do. Now, we're in the fourth section in Matthew 5 where Jesus is going through and he's showing how what God actually says in his word is different from what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching God said about his word. Okay, so there's a difference. And whereas the first three sections on murder and lust and divorce, Jesus actually has a specific Old Testament text in mind. Here, there's not any one specific text, but there's a cluster of passages from the law of Moses that Jesus is referring to here when he says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. There's a cluster of passages where the Lord speaks about oaths and vows. Oaths and vows. And those two things are a little bit different, but they're related. So a vow is a solemn promise. It's a solemn promise to do something or to live a certain way. And usually that vow would be made to the Lord. He has a solemn promise, usually to the Lord, to do something or to live a certain way. 
So for example, in the book of Numbers, we, we have the Nazarite vow, which was a voluntary vow that someone would make to be set apart in a special way to the Lord for a season. And it came with its own regulations and agreements. And, and, and people were expected to keep that vow. And there were stipulations for what would happen if the vow was broken and it would start over. Now, vows are never commanded in scripture, okay? They're never commanded, but they were made by certain people voluntarily at certain times, and they were regulated by the Mosaic law. And these were really serious. So Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5 says that it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Okay, just don't vow if you're not sure you're going to follow through with it. Now, an oath is something that would oftentimes go with a vow. An oath could only be made in the name of the Lord, and it was basically invoking God as witness against that person if they didn't do what they vowed. Okay, so the vow was the promise and the oath was the, 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 the kind of the circle of guardianship around that promise made in the name of the Lord. And it was as if the person was saying, if I don't do what I'm saying, may God himself strike me down or judge me. Okay, that's what's going on there. Now, Jesus, I told you, is alluding to a few passages about these things here in the Sermon on the Mount. One of those passages was probably from Leviticus 19, verses 11 through 12. And the Lord says, you shall not steal you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So because God is who he is, his people are to speak true words and not bear false witness. They certainly shouldn't invoke the name of God when they're committing perjury, and they certainly shouldn't take lightly what they say they'll do in God's name. Another passage Jesus alludes to is in Numbers 30, in verse 2. Where it says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In other words, God's people need to do what they say they're going to do, even down to the detail. No part of the vow left undone. It's a matter of integrity. In fact, holiness sometimes corresponds to the clock. In other words, the, the timing in which you fulfill a vow is not unimportant. Okay, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says this, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you'll be guilty of sin, or you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Okay, so the Lord never required vows, but when they were made, he required that they be kept. So God cares about his people's promises. Jesus knows this. The Jews knew it. His listeners knew it. The Pharisees and the scribes knew it. And this was actually what was behind the third commandment. Oftentimes, the third commandment gets taught, you know, you shall not take the, Lord your, uh, the Lord's name in vain. That gets taught as a, as to kids as like, well, don't swear, don't cuss. And that, that's not really the meaning of it. The meaning is this. When we take the, na the Lord's name and we involve him in something that we've said, we need to do that thing. If we let our words fall to the ground, we're taking his name in vain and showing what we truly think of him. That's what's going on in the third commandment. So since all vows were made in the Lord's name, it, to make a vow or take an oath and break it was to take his name in vain. And there were two, two ways that the Lord's name could be taken in vain when it comes to oaths. Two ways, as Jesus says in verse 33, that people could swear falsely. And the, first, the first of these ways is that a person could intentionally tell an, 
uh, a lie under oath, which is perjury, right? They could go down to the local tax office and they could sign that statement that to the best of my knowledge, this statement is, is full and true and X, Y, Z, and I've reported all my taxes. But if they knew they didn't really, that's perjury. That's a way to swear falsely. Or second, someone could have really good intentions. They could, dis- they, you know, they could make a vow and have every intention of keeping it, but they just don't. Something came up. And at that point, that's another way to swear falsely. It may have started better than the other kind, but both of them were sin. Now, by the time of Christ, the scribes and the Pharisees, considering these passages, had become actually pretty crafty at how they handled oaths and vows. They'd come up with a complex way of dealing with oaths and vows that had actually created a culture of lies. All the while, they taught that nothing shady was going on. What's bizarre about the whole thing is that they looked at the word of God, said they were upholding it, and taught people how to break it. How does that work? Well, we get a hint at it, uh, how they did that, in verses 34 through 36. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. These tricky Bible scholars, they knew their Old Testaments. They were, after all, the keepers of the law. They were the people that everybody else looked up to. And so if you were taught by a scribe or Pharisee, what I'm about to tell you, you wouldn't really question it. You would go, okay, well, I guess that's just how it works. Well, what they said was, now a biblical oath has to be taken in the name of the Lord. And if you do that, you have to do it. But check this out. We got a bunch of other great stuff around. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your own head. Why don't you swear by those things? That'll add weight to what you're saying so that the person you're talking to will believe you. But it wasn't a real proper oath to begin with because it wasn't in the name of the Lord. So you don't actually have to do what you say. That's what they did. That's what people did every single day. It created a culture of lies. Because look at the technicality. It wasn't in the name of the Lord. All right. It's the kid on the playground saying, my fingers were crossed behind my back. I'm not actually going to give you my Kit Kat. But thanks for the Snickers that you said, you know, I told you we'd trade. (laughs) Kids know how to do this. The Pharisees just made it really more sophisticated. It was very complex. A culture of lies had become the norm. In fact, it had become so much the norm that I'm going to read you a few verses from Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is speaking about Pharisees and scribes, and he's declaring on them a series of woes. He has had it up to here with the self-righteousness, legalistic sinfulness of these guys who said that they were teaching God's word when actually they were destroying God's people. And how they handled their word was central to this. He says in verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. 
But notice what Jesus says about this kind of thing. You know, they really had this hierarchy. The temple, the gold, the altar, this counts, that doesn't count. You have to do it as long as it's going to get us money. But if it's the other stuff, don't worry about it. And Jesus says, fine, you want to swear by heaven or earth? Well, let's remember what Isaiah says in Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. So swearing by heaven involves the name of the Lord just as much as taking the name of the Lord. Swearing by earth involves the Lord because guess what? He's there too. In fact, that's where he sets his feet, so to speak, as he's reigning over everything he created. Well, what about Jerusalem? We can swear by that, right? Nope. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Just as Jesus says, swearing by Jerusalem involves the Lord. What about my head? My head is mine. No, no, it is not. Your head belongs to God. He's the one who made it. You can't even change its color without going to the salon. God made your hair the color that it is, and he'll decide when your head can stay or come off, which is what you're saying when you swear by your head. If I don't do this, may my head be taken off. No, the Lord is God of your head. In fact, there's nothing that you can swear by that doesn't call God into it. God is everywhere. And everywhere God is, he's Lord. And it's against that rampant culture of lies that Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all. God's people have no business cheapening the truth with empty oaths. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, Old Testament law uses oaths to reject lying. But Jesus rejects lying by prohibiting oaths. Now, there are denominations and groups of Christians in church history um, that have taken these words um, as an ultimate prohibition against all oaths. So, for example, Quakers or Anabaptists won't, they will not take an oath in court. If they're called for jury duty, whatever the case, they, as a matter of religious principle, because of this passage, they won't swear an oath in court. Uh, but we know that, and, and I respect that, but um, that's not what Christ means. Okay? And we know that because later at his own trial, he, Jesus swears under oath, or he, uh, as he's put under oath by the high priest, he gives testimony that he is the Son of God. And even Paul himself in Scripture, as he's writing Scripture inspired by God, invokes the name of the Lord, not because he can't be trusted, but to give gravity to what he's saying. So, for example, take Romans 1 and verse 9 and 10, where it says, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. I'd be really confident that this guy's praying for me if he said that. But is Paul, I mean, you could have believed him even if he didn't say that. But if Jesus forbid all oaths, I highly doubt the Lord would have inspired him to write that. And even God himself, we're told in Hebrews, swore an oath. We see him doing that in Genesis 22 when he's giving a covenant to Abraham. So oaths and vows are not forbidden absolutely, but Jesus is absolutely forbidding the kind of worthless oaths that had become the norm that caused people to be untrustworthy to one another, so much so that you couldn't really take another person at their word. The fact that oaths and vows exist at all is a testimony to the fact that people lie. Have you thought about that before? We wouldn't need to take oaths if people didn't lie. Once a speaker at our, uh, at our Bible college 
told us about a small town in Canada where nobody locked their doors at night for their cars or their homes or whatever. And he said, the, sa the safest place in the world is not where you have the most locks. It's where you don't need any. Because no one's breaking any laws or harming anybody else. And the same ought to be true with our word. But people lie. I mean, when a parent says to their kid, hey, we're going to go to the movies, what's the kid going to say half the time? Do you promise? What's really being implied? I've been let down too many times by that guy. I really want to lock in the movie. Can you promise me, Dad, that we're going to do it? Well, if Dad hadn't lied to that kid before, the kid wouldn't say, you promise? Because he knows his dad's good for his word. Vows exist because lying exists. People regularly fail to follow through on what they say, and this is sin. It's false witness. It's unfitting for God's people. And Jesus shows us a better way in verse 37. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Or as your footnote says, the evil one, which is what some translations say. And he tells us that to tell the truth uh, here in the context of the Sermon on the Mount comes from a heart that is transformed by his grace. Because remember, that's the whole thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's not telling people who struggle to tell the truth to try harder. That's, that's not it at all. What he is saying is if you're poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, coming to Christ alone by faith for salvation, then go from a transformed heart by the Holy Spirit of truth who indwells you and tell the truth. Jesus says that his followers are to have such integrity that if they say yes, people know they're good for their word. And if they say no, people know they mean it. They're not going to mince words because half-truths and broken words come from sinful hearts and Satan himself, the father of lies. This is where it starts to get <laughs> pretty uncomfortable for us because as soon as we read verse 37, we knew that everybody lies. On Jesus' terms, everyone lies. I lie. You lie. We are all guilty. I mean, how often have you said that you'll do something and then you forget and don't do it? Or even worse, you just stop caring that you said it at all. How many times have you exaggerated the truth and made yourself out to be something that you aren't or a little more than you are? Paul says, consider yourself with sober judgment. Every white lie is dark as sin. Okay? And when talking about the radical depravity of the human heart, the Apostle Paul, in the first three chapters of Romans, in which he means to uh, show that all, without exception, are sinful and corrupt, he says this. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. So every single person, at some point, in some way, shape, or form, lies by nature and by choice, and oftentimes more subtly than they realize. Some people struggle with flagrant outright deception, and that's a matter of enslaving sin, but many, if not most people, struggle with it in the more subtle forms. And it's so common in our culture to lie, it's so much a part of our spiritual DNA that we couldn't even begin to count the number of lies that we've told. If we start to really get down into the details, Jesus' own brother, James, says this in the third chapter of his letter. He says, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Everybody stumbles in what they say. Since Eden, when this whole thing got kicked off with the lie, in one way or another, 
more than others sometimes, but everyone struggles with lying. This is not good, <laughs> obviously, but one of like the number one reason I can think of that it's not good is that before the holy God of truth, we are all of us guilty. And the same Jesus who condemns us by his words is also the same Jesus who heals us by his wounds. Because friends, Jesus died for liars. Jesus died for liars. With every lie we tell, we deserve hell. But the Son of God, who never lied, bore the full weight of our lies on his shoulders as he went to the cross. And this is exactly what Peter tells us happened in 1 Peter 2. He says that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was surrounded there in his trial by all sorts of false witnesses. But he himself was never false. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We're the ones who deceive, but he never deceived. We're the ones who deserve to die, but he died in our place that we might be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That every single lie we've ever told would be nailed to a cross, told it is finished, and God did not lie when he said that. We have a good Savior. And because Jesus lives, we can tell the truth. Every single person who has turned to Christ by faith, no matter what the nature of their struggles, every single believer has a new heart that's indwelt by the spirit of truth. And Jesus has prayed for us. He prayed for us in that great prayer in John 17 before he went to the cross. And by the way, God always answers Jesus' prayers. And what did he say? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Again, Jesus' brother James helps us here. He, he helps us by helping us to see that telling the truth is one of the ways that we can determine whether our own faith is authentic. His book is written as a series of tests, more or less, to help us gauge whether or not our faith is genuine. And at the end of that book, after all that he said, listen to this, he says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He's probably thinking of his own brother's Sermon on the Mount when he says that. And the kind of condemnation that he's talking about, he, he's not using the word for God's discipline for his people who are redeemed but yet who sin and need to be chastised. He's using the word for the eternal condemnation of someone who doesn't believe, for someone who's rejected Christ. And he says this idea, this thing about telling the truth because we live before God and are saved by him is so important that if we find ourselves to be habitual liars, it is evidence that our heart has not been changed by the gospel. He's not saying that true Christians never lie. Okay, he's not saying that. But he is saying that if this is a sin of which someone has not repented and is making a life of lying, that shows that they've never experienced the grace of God because the grace of God in Christ 100% of the time will transform somebody from a corrupt sinner to a sinning saint who daily comes to Jesus for cleansing. Jesus died for liars and he turns them into truth-tellers because he himself is the truth. Or if you'd like to put it another way, perhaps more memorable, hearts full of the gospel speak words full of truth. Okay, hearts full of the gospel speak words full of truth. 
And so how do we live lives of truth that target the subtle and often unnoticed ways in which we're taught by our own culture and our own sinful nature to cheapen the truth with lies? How does the grace of God actually in detail change somebody into a truth teller so that they will never need to take an oath because no one questions whether what they say is actually true? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that for someone to tell the truth from a heart that's transformed by the gospel, they need to live before the face of God. They need to live before the face of God. And this is what the reformers referred to in the Latin phrase, corum Deo, which means literally in the presence of God or before God's face. R.C. Sproul put it like this. He said, to live corum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. Okay, is to live one's entire life under the, uh, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he tells his disciples not to swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or their own heads, because God is everywhere. God is everywhere. And so, don't swear, but in his presence, let your yes be yes and your no be no, because every word we utter is uttered in God's presence. He hears, and we're told he will call to account every word. So if you would tell the truth, you would do well to remember that God is with you. And if you're a Christian, that God loves you, that God has redeemed you, that God has changed you. He himself spares no expense to transform you into someone who looks like his son, telling the truth in love. You can, if you struggle with the truth, you can put away falsehood. You are not enslaved anymore. Again, Jesus has made an end of that. And so we as his people can show the goodness of God by refusing to lie. And when we stumble, as James tells us, we all do in many ways, we can confess our lies with repentant faith. We can confess our lies in repentant faith. Dennis declared to us the gospel earlier from 1 John, and he reminded us from the scriptures that if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But notice that Jesus is only an advocate to those who come to him by faith, to those who forsake their sins and embrace their Savior. It's those who confess their sins who are forgiven, not those who harbor them and ignore them and pretend they're not there, which is actually to lie about their sins. Nobody ever deceived anybody else by hiding their sins except themselves. God always sees. Perhaps you've never acknowledged your sins to God before. It is possible that you have never acknowledged your sins to God before, whether lying or any other sin. Perhaps this morning you may be here wondering if you have been forgiven for the lies that you have told. Perhaps you're unsure if you've ever come to God in repentant faith. And if that's you, I would declare to you what God himself says about these things, which is that today is the day of salvation. Today, no matter how many lies you've told in your life, today, those can be done away with in the presence of God through Jesus Christ if you would but believe in your Savior and lay hold of him. Deception is one of the things that brings a great deal of shame to a heart that's been weighed down by the burden of it. But when I open my Bible, I read that Jesus bore our shame and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And so today, if you bear the shame of deceit that you've left unconfessed, come to your Savior and then go and live free of that shame because it is not yours to bear anymore.
Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the only way to deal with lying. And for those who are Christians who have come to Christ by faith, you know how easy it is to slip in a little lie with the truth here or there, oftentimes unintentionally. We stumble in many ways to exaggerate and break our word. And when you realize that you've lied, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the way forward is the same as at the first, which is to acknowledge that to God, to come clean with him, and then go and acknowledge it to the person that you've lied to. Make it right. Yes, that takes humility. And yes, we really don't do humility that well on our own. But thanks be to God, we have an advocate who we're told draws near to the humble, but opposes the proud. So come to him, and by his grace, acknowledge it. And then, thirdly, resolve to always tell the truth. So help you God. (laughs) You don't, it may be true in court, but it's true for us every day. Because as God's people, hearing Jesus here in verse 37, we see that he tells us to let our yes be yes and our no be no, which means that the only way of obedience in the Christian life is an obedience of integrity. An obedience of integrity with no oath necessary. But as soon as we realize that that's what obedience means, we have to recall what Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so in order to be people of the truth from the gospel out, okay, we actually need to come and depend on him to always tell the truth. And with God's help, prayerfully we can do that. We can resolve to do that, to always tell the truth. Now, brief word of caution. The truth is powerful. It can also be dangerous. (laughs) So, and I say this from years of counseling, resolving to always tell the truth doesn't mean always saying everything that's true that you could say. I think you know where I'm going with this. There's a lot of true things that you may think, but read Proverbs and then don't say them. (laughs) And there's a difference between deceiving somebody by withholding the truth that is pertinent And being wise with your words, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love is patient. It's kind. It isn't rude. There's a lot of rude truth-tellers out there. Let us not be among them. We want to take God's wisdom to heart. So if your friend asks you, here we go, if you like her new shirt and you really don't, don't lie. Just say it's not my favorite. And then give her an honest compliment. Couples have been in this situation far too many times. Do these genes... (laughs) Wayne Grudem, in his book on Christian ethics, talks about that very scenario, and then he says maybe this is one of those times that the passage in Scripture might loosely apply. In that hour, God will give you the words to say, (laughs) but you can't prepare for that kind of a thing. But what you can do is resolve to always tell the truth, depend on God for wisdom how to do it, and then, keyword, graciously be telling the truth at all times. Okay? I am now absolved of any guilt for anything that happens in your home from not doing that, okay? I'm just the watchman. Well, another aspect of truth-telling righteousness is doing what you say you'll do no matter how small. Okay, do what you say no matter how small because there's no such thing as a commitment that's so insignificant you can break it. According to Jesus, a yes should be as powerful in the mouth of a Christian as the words, I solemnly swear to do what I've said. There should be no material difference between the one syllable and that sentence. I swear to do what I've said. When you say you'll be there, be there. 
Too often Christians make a commitment and then if something they think is more important comes up, they bail. And then sometimes they easily justify it by saying, well, that was a really worthy cause. There was, there was a need. And Jesus says, keeping your word is a worthy cause because it's a matter of reflecting the God of truth. And I'm not talking about actual emergencies. Okay, I'm not talking about actual emergencies where you're on your way to a commitment, but you, you, you see somebody who's genuinely in need on the side of the road, and so you stop because you're a Christian and you actually care. Okay, I'm not talking about emergencies. I'm talking about those non-emergency situations that for some people seem to come up quite often as they're on their way to fulfilling their commitments. In Psalm 15, David asks, who can dwell with God? And the answer is that only a blameless person can dwell with God. We heard that read earlier today by Chris. Someone who's clothed with Christ's righteousness is the one who can appear before God. And that person is characterized by a number of things that are laid out in Psalm 15. And one of those things is this. He says, it's someone who speaks the truth in his heart, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And what I, when I read that, what I'm understanding David to mean is that you do what you say, even if it becomes inconvenient for you to do so. If you tell someone you'll do it, do it. If you agree to pay a bill, pay the bill on time. And if something genuinely comes up and you need to be released from that commitment, then do what Solomon says in Proverbs 6. Acknowledge that. Go to that person. Explain the situation and then ask them, would you please release me from this commitment? But make sure if you do that kind of thing that it's rare. Because the more someone does that, the less their integrity means to the people on the other side. And then finally, make sure that if you have to take a vow, you do it rarely also and seriously. That you do it rarely and seriously. Vows are appropriate in certain situations. Because again, Christ isn't forbidding his people from swearing an oath like before a judge or taking marriage vows, for instance. In fact, here at our church, at every single child dedication, at every single baptism, there are vows made. A series of questions asked, do you commit before God and this church to do X, Y, Z? And the people who are being baptized and the people who are dedicating their child say, we do, with the Lord's help. That's a vow. Every December, the members of this church gather in this sanctuary, and Rick Lyon reads a series of statements in our membership covenant. We affirm those verbally, and then in writing, we're giving a vow. It's good to go back to your vows, which you make rarely and seriously, and recall what you have said, so that with God's help, you wouldn't lapse in doing those things. But with his help... And by looking to Christ by faith, friends, in all of these things, we can, we can be people of the truth who live not by lies. Because, friends, hearts full of the gospel speak words full of truth. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you who spoke to us these words, in the Sermon on the Mount, to let our yes be yes and our no, no. You are the truth. And we acknowledge that far too many times and in too many ways, we have let our words fall to the ground. But we thank you that you who have revealed these things to us are the one who has died for us. We praise and thank you that you knew every lie we would ever tell before you went to the cross. You took full account of the weight of our sins and you bore them in full. We thank you that because you died and rose again, we are not condemned. And because of what you have done and because of your spirit of truth that dwells within us, we pray that you would help us to live evermore as people of the truth. 
Help us, Holy Spirit, to recognize the ways that we deceive, the ways that we play fast and loose with things that are very weighty. And please help us in integrity to bless others, to serve them, to pour ourselves out for them, and to keep our commitments, knowing that this is not us trying harder, but this is what the gospel looks like worked out in the lives of your people. And it's for your glory, for your fame, and for the purity of your bride for whom you're returning that we pray. Amen.